Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, reads A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 125, Catalan 8 in A Game of Thrones. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And yes, we have traveled very, very far with Catelyn. It's only been a book. It's only been eight chapters, but we've gone a lot of places. Yeah, as our lightning round will totally depict and we'll talk about it in a bit. A lot happens between Catelyn 7 and Catelyn 8. We're in a whole new place with lots of action. It's a fast-paced, exposition-full chapter with a lot of good decisions happening or bad decisions happening depending on how you view it yeah i mean would it be a catlin chapter if we did not get the exposition on the story and the politics of westeros and the north you know there's a lot happening in the chapters before this chapter that really inform it right like Uh with ned sending out the brotherhood we'll talk about it all in a minute but first things first a little housekeeping This month, we are doing a special Patreon episode for patrons in the Stranger tier, the $5 and above tier. This month is going to be an episode on the free cities of A Song of Ice and Fire. And Eliana, I guess drumroll, we have decided what what is the free city. Yeah, Catelyn's not the only one going a lot of places. We're all going to Pentos. Oh my god, all-inclusive? Yeah, we actually go to that in this book, too. So it's it all works. It all goes together. We thought it was a perfect transition while we're revisiting a Game of Thrones and the early parts of the story and talk about some of the later parts, right? The influence Pentos will have to come. Yeah, and speaking of things to come, we have our Discord brunch slash happy hour for May coming up later this month on... Sunday, May 23rd, 2 to 4 p.m. EDT, Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And you know that theme, right? That theme is a little bit about what's in the future. Kinda. (laughs) Yes, our theme for our brunch is going to be dreams. Dreams of spring. Yeah, we're actually doing our potluck presentation this month. So if you are on our Discord, you are a Thunder Tier member of the Patreon or above, Uh, You're also probably a little crazy like we are because we're always posting weird stuff. There's like memes. There's so much canceling all the time. Uh, There's all the fun TV shows to talk about and books and just really good conversation. So come on over. Check out that tier on Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. But our brunch, usually every month we either play games or do a potluck presentation where People do three to five slides on a theme, right? Which this month's theme is, of course, dreams of spring or dreams of whatever, right? I know a lot of us are dreaming of a future where we can do things. uh, So that will probably be a popular theme, right? Yeah. And as we said, right, you can interpret that theme as loosely as you want, right? It could be, as you said, just dreams. And it happens to be spring now. (laughs) It could be a dream that you're having this spring, right? Like... I don't remember any of my dreams this spring. None of them were that noteworthy yet. Now I'm probably going to have like a super weird dream tonight. And we'll report back next week if yeah. we get a new dream Make of spring. Three slides on it. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, it, it's a fun time brunch, right? You can 
it's brunch slash happy hours. You can sip a drink or have a snack and it's just games and there's some fun giveaways for fandom and community related kind of merchandise and get to know yous. It's fun. We have fun. So come hang out. This is fun. Look at all the fun we're having. I feel like I've said that almost every episode so far. Well, it is Catalan. <laughs> it is Catalan, and we did run into Tyrion. Some of the other places that we're going are actually other series, right? We do not only cover A Song of Ice and Fire here, we also talk about his dark materials. Yes, and we are actually finishing a companion trilogy book. That's right, there are lots of books out for his dark materials if you're not familiar, and we're reading a book from the Companion Trilogy, which is kind of like a prequel-sequel sandwich book. You know, it's weird, but it's a great book, and we're finishing it. We're finishing it this month. We're hoping to record with one of our friends. Uh, It's semi-confirmed that she's going to come on. She's hoping to come on. It's our friend Holly Hunt from the Dust Podcast, so... Really excited to have her on if she can make it, and excited to finish La Belle Sauvage. Not in a mean way, just in a a, a good book, ready for the, the final, the climax, the, the final confrontations of the story. Speaking of the Dust podcast, not only might Holly join us, we actually recently caught up with Matt from the Dust, aka Double M, or uh, mm-hmm. as he says, also aka Hey You, and... We joined Matt for their watch-through, right, their rewatch of the His Dark Materials television show, not just the books, to get together, you know, you and watch His Dark Materials Season 1, Episode 4, Armor, and the format is pretty fun. It's like you can watch the episode with us. Yeah, it's really fun. The timestamps and everything are there that you can start at the same time as us, queue it up. And enjoy our hysterical, if not misguided, banter. I thought it was fun. I thought it was good. I I know, I had fun. Yeah, I had a great time. So if you want to just sit back, relax, watch an episode, it it will be hard, I think, to listen to the episode, but whatever, you've probably already seen it. And get our great commentary and Matt's great commentary. And he, like, points out the music, which is super cool, uh, as you're watching the episode. You know, I was going to go back and look at our episodes because we did cover series one and series two of the better adapted HBO book adaptation TV show, <clears throat> His Dark Materials series. Um, it's, it's not TV, it's HBO. But uh, we, we did cover both of those series and I was going to go back to our notes and I decided not to. And I went in and just like observed what my brain thought at the time at my now you know advanced past series one brain and it was fun i discussed some of the things i'm you know a very static character at times you know i grow i'm also (laughs) static right uh the nature of our world the contradictions and some things uh some of you might recognize from our episodes when i bring them up but other ones such as the size of yorick bernison's nose that's a new observation Oh, that was in the flash. That was, you know, mm-hmm. that was, mm-hmm. honestly, live. that was imp- improvised. She did it live. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, before we go live here, Eliana, I do want to shout out this message we got from our patron, our friend Haven. She messaged us and said, Hello, ladies. Last week's episode with Clint is my new favorite episode that you have done. It has me wondering if we should see Sansa and Arya's relationship as a sort of foil to Liza and Catelyn's. 
what a thought. Mm-hmm. What a, I'm like, here's a ribbon. It is a brilliant thought. You should hold this ribbon forever. A great thought. Because especially when you consider that Arya and Sansa are likely going to have to reckon with their differences and their relationship with Littlefinger in their midst. Yes. Right? They, they will have to complete this circle of trust and sew it back together. And I think that's so important because of, of that rift between Kat and Liza and coming to trust each other maybe much like what Kat and Liza used to have as girls in their childhood back before, you know, when innocence was a high, you know? Yeah, and I love that you use that metaphor of sewing it back together because both of them, you know, have their ways of sewing, right? They both mm-hmm. do that. Um, they are both dancers of a sort as well. There's a lot of things that uh, connect their stories, and I love this point that Haven had brought up. Because, you know, in regards to how Sansa and Arya are described, it fits perfectly with some of the things we were talking about last chapter of Liza being like the moon. Because Arya is literally described as the moon by Ned, right? And in a way, like, Arya is inconstant, but in a, she's inconstant very differently from Liza, right? Like, just as the moon has many faces, that's used as a metaphor for Liza's moods. But Arya literally has many faces, like the moon. And <laughs> a bag of them, if it's to be believed. <laughs> or at least like a room of them, a cellar. Oh, come into my wine cellar. Also in the other room of my cellar are faces. I store oh, them. Fa- my cellar of faces. This is a vintage uh. from 20 years ago. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, they would keep best in the north, Eliana. Oh my god. Cold. Actually, that's very true. At least they won't rot. Oh do they god. put like formaldehyde, do you think, on those? Anyways. Um, so... I love that, and also I'm just excited for Arya and Sansa working together in the later books. That's something I'm super looking forward to. A reunion for sure. Absolutely. I wanted to call it one last thing, and I thank you so much, Haven, for telling us that that's your new favorite episode. I wanted to call out this tweet that we got that I thought was so funny from Archswaff on Twitter, that they, going into the episode last week with Clint, were expecting it to be about the law, which it is, but the reality of the episode is that Clint joined us to talk about fashion. Honestly, I, Clint did all the marks, you know, like, he had every ring, he was like, and I brought a fashion hour, I was like, oh my god, Clint, you brought me a fashion, I, I, I kind of blushed. It was a little, bl- and you know, beforehand, you all didn't get to hear our beforehand, but we kept joking. It was Aswaf foreplay. It was very smooth. We had a yeah. lot of fun banter, and I-, I loved having Clint on. I can't wait to have him back again. Absolutely. Yes, but until then, back to Catelyn. There's oh, a lot happening. Go. Yeah. This is this is a thunderstorm round. I don't think oh. it's a lightning round. It's a Derek Dondarrion round. It's a Derek Dondarrion round. And Dondarrion <gasps> we go. Let's kick it off with John 5. The boys graduate the Night's Watch training school to become Night's Watch men. But Sam Tarly doesn't quite make the grade. John stands up for his friend, asking Maester Aemon to use Sam's skills and make him a steward. Tyrion 6. Tyrion befriends and negotiates a peace and an agreement with the mountain clans in the Vale. The Vale. Shows you what taking the high road does. Mm-hmm. Eddard 11. Eddard acts as king while Robert's out hunting. He strips Gregor Clegane of his lands and sends a force under Derek Dondarrion <laughs> to give the kings justice. 
Sansa 3. Sansa accidentally shows Eddard the light when he tells her that they must return to Winterfell. Eddard 12. Ned corners Cersei in the godswood, but may have made a pretty big mistake in showing his hand too soon. Daenerys 5. Daenerys eats a stallion heart, showing the Kalasar not only her strength, but her son's strength as well. Viserys is given the crown. Fit for a king. <laughs> Eddard 13. Robert, another king, dies. Oh. Ned Hope's little finger isn't a little fucker. Bad news. <laughs> John 6. John gets sorted into Hufflepuff. Ghost finds a hand in the snow. Is that foreshadowing? The Hufflepuff part? No, the hand. Ghost finding a hand and Ned is the hand. Oh, in the snow! Ned, the snow! Snow! <laughs> Eddard 14. Ned's household gets murder trained by the Lannisters after Littlefinger betrays him. <sighs> Arya 4. No, I'm 30. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, why are you this way? Arya escapes her dancing lesson, having to kill her way out of King's Landing. Sansa 4. After mistaking the queen for a sympathetic player, Sansa is brought to the council to send letters to her family, begging them to lay their swords aside and bend the knee. John 7. Bodies of Night's Watchmen are found, and in the night, John slays one of the reanimated corpses, saving Elsie Mormont. Brand 6. The northern hosts begin to arrive, and Rob prepares to march south. Daenerys 6. Unable to convince Khal Drogo to take the Seven Kingdoms, Danny goes to the market, where a poisoning attempt on the Khaleesi is made. <gasps> This pushes Caldrogo over the line, who promises to win Danny her very uncomfortable chair. Yeah, it's true. It's in the speech. <laughs> it is. We've arrived at Moat Kalen with Catalan and the Blackfish to meet Rob's host. Catalan and Rob realize they have no option. They must win or die. Rob decides to bring his support to River Run. Yes, and so the chapter starts where. Catelyn's trying to see into the distance, and she cannot make them out this far, but she already knows that the White Banner's approaching could only be the direwolf of House Stark. The gods were good. And as you can see from our lightning round and where we are this chapter, a lot has happened for Catelyn since the last chapter, and now she has traveled very far. Frequent flyer miles. I just think that she's calling it too early on this whole gods are good thing. I think she should hold out just a few more chapters. Just a bit, yeah. Uh, She reins her horse up, bows her head in thanks, and prepares to meet with Willis Manderley and the Blackfish. Wendell and Willis follow them as they trot briskly toward the banners. 1,500 men, 20-odd knights, just as many squires, 200 mounted lances, swordsmen, free riders, and the rest are foot, armed with spears, spikes, and tridents. Wyman had remained at White Harbor, strengthening the defenses. If I had thought to see war again in my lifetime, I should have eaten a few less eels, he'd told Catalan when he met her ship, slapping his massive belly with both hands. 
I love to revisit this and see the Manderleys at the start of the story. Yeah, especially after visiting with Davos, right? We were just there in the harbor with Wyman, learning uh, from him that that he did go ahead and do as he was told when he was in the north uh, with from Bran and from Catelyn and Eddard's call and their messages. I also think it's great to see the similar position that Davos took to Catelyn right as she greets other great lords and learns of their rebellions and, and meets kings and constantly does this kind of diplomacy shtick we're going to get into, like with Stannis and Renly. Absolutely. And yeah, it, as you said, it's great to see the Manderleys here again and find out, as you said, that they did all the things and... Yeah, it's interesting. He says he didn't think to see war again in his lifetime. That makes me sad. It makes me sad for Wyman. You know, he was like, we did it. There's going to be peace now and happily ever after. And as we know from these books that a lot of people don't have any happily ever afters. But anyway. Some cold ending in the woods. Yeah. And some of that is the case for members of House Manderley, right? For some of these boys that Wyman sends, his sons, uh, who are both older than Catelyn interestingly. And they take up after their father. Catelyn pities the horses that they ride on and <laughs> thinks of how they are not unlike their father in looks, but that their personalities are different from each other. And Willis is quiet, formal, and Wendell is loud and boisterous. And while they're messy, and I guess she's like, I guess they're not very good to look upon, not very pleasant on the eyes. Catelyn likes them well enough, and they got her to rob, and that was all that matters. And so this is one of those moments where we do get to see some of Kat's prejudices, right? We've talked about her pragmatism previously, and this is a little different from that. And she does learn to move past them, right? Because the Manderleys did do what she wanted, and she finds them competent. And, I mean, I guess in her defense, I don't know if this is really in her defense, you know, a lot of people judge the Manderleys for their weight, and some of that, I guess, is intentional in the framing and the way that George writes it in these earlier chapters. It's in Bran's chapters as well, and it does sort of, it's sort of meant to mislead us a little about them for that setup for, you know, as you were talking about, Chloe, those Davos chapters mm -hmm. that we covered. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think it's targeted as much as, like, Doran, for example, me and the whole uh, disability club, we're not going to call up and be like, George, when you ruin everything about Doran's life, including Doran, we'll be calling you. You know, like, I'm not about to do that. No. But it is kind of interesting that Catelyn is like, well, they're fat, but they're all right, I guess. <laughs> She's like, they're okay for being fat. <laughs> that is okay. the subtext, Okay, right? Catelyn. But yeah, I mean... I get it. She, she's a proper lady, right? Like, and interestingly enough, as we see from their great wealth and prosperity, though, like, it does remind me of how, you know, back in the olden days, the old medieval times, uh, you know, weight was also a class signifier. They yeah. have great bounty and they grew up well. That's true. That's a great point. And they thought there was going to be peace. You know, they were optimists. Yeah. Good for them. Well, and I'm glad that Kat got over it, right? She was like, you know what? They're nice enough. They're here to do a job, and they're also being pleasant, and I'm being pleasant. She's just fine with them, and that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Whatever. They're, they're know, good at their worse. job. And <laughs> that's all Catelyn asks of people. You know, that's why she's like, give all those men silver. They're, they were good at their job. <laughs> you existed. Here's some money. I wish someone would do that to me. Oh. Uh, <laughs> 
Rob had sent riders to the east, which she was happy to hear of, of him being so careful, even if the Lannisters would be coming from the south. She could only half believe her son is leading a host to war. He was just a boy a year ago, and now she trails off in thought, and the outriders that Rob sent spot the blue-green banners of the Manderleys and hail them warmly, leading them to high, dry ground that's meant for camp. The men tend to the fires and the horses, and Catelyn and her uncle present Lord Tully's respects to the liege lord. The letters that Catelyn sent at the Eyrie do seem to have paid off, right? The, the banners have been assembling the last few chapters. We see that in the last Bran chapter as they uh, start to show up and Rob leads them south, but it seems her letters got across. That they did. And the wagons are full of hard bread and salt beef. They're making their way to the Lord's Pavilion, and Kat recognizes a couple of these banners, including the brown and orange bull moose banners as the Hornwoods. She glimpses the walls and towers of Moat Kale and beyond, and again, exposition. It's a Catlin <laughs> chapter. Introduction to the Manderleys. And here, some of those other houses, right? We're going to get a few of them later. But these houses' political significance comes forward a lot more in book two. And yeah, we were introduced to them in Bran's chapters earlier, but still exposition anyway well, and i think this is a, a more intimate look right of yeah. seeing kind of like from an adult's lens is the other thing bran doesn't notice all of the interesting things about these men that catalan and rob are about to notice for us yeah she is like oh there's the towers and what Kaelin, or i guess what's remained of them they're described as immense blocks of scattered basalt laying in the boggy soil, and I like that word, boggy, and <laughs> a curtain wall lays destroyed. The keep had rotted away a thousand years ago. There's not even timber to mark where it stood. And we have this description of all that was left of the great stronghold of the first men were three towers, three where there had once been twenty, if the tale tellers could be believed. <laughs> oh yes, twenty good towers. Oh, yes, the 20 tale tellers of the good towers. Yes. Uh, uh, 20 good men telling stories. They're 20 good towers. <laughs> I do love the description of this place. It says like a child, it looks like a child had scattered building blocks around because it is made by the children of the forest. Yeah. It definitely is a place, and it's so early on that it's such a place of lore, right? Yes. Like, you feel this immense magical power and lore that's seeping into the story suddenly in Catelyn's plot again. And we get a little more of a description of those three remaining towers. The gatehouse tower looks strong. The drunkard's tower leans like a man about to spew wine in the gutter, thus its name. And the slender children's tower had lost half its crown. And I love the description of that loss because it says it looked as if some great beast had taken a bite out of the crenellations along the tower top and spit the rubble across the bog it, it, it's straight up dragon vibes right you're like wow do you think a great beast clawed its way up there and ate it like a dragon uh even though this was far before the conquest right like it's hinted at that this was a thousand years ago and I don't know, there's a lot going on in these beautiful past couple chapters in prose, especially in the previous Danny chapter, Thinking of Dragons, and this is great. It shows them entering these destroyed places, and especially with Catelyn later going to Old Stones, there's a lot of that vibe to this, but this from Danny was great. The day was warm and cloudless, the sky a deep blue. 
When the wind blew, she could smell the rich scents of grass and earth. As her litter passed beneath the stolen monuments, she went from sunlight to shadow and back again. Danny swayed along, studying the faces of dead heroes and forgotten kings. She wondered if the gods of burned cities could still answer prayers. There's a lot of hints here that, that some of these historical questions George is trying to raise and prompt for us to think about in these worlds between the First Men and the Children and the Andals and the Targaryens and the Dragon Lords of Valyria and these stories. Uh, and the Children, of course, are very much comparative to the Cranach Men, right, of today, as we get the introduction to mm. the Cranach Men in this story very soon. And uh, the First Men, the Stark's ancestors, right? And that impending idea of a Targaryen return of dragons in the book, and, and the idea of the munch of a dragon off of a building. But another thing that feels really significant here is that it feels like immense foreshadowing for Winterfell burning mm. down and being destroyed across the next books, along with some of the Theon foreshadowing we're going to talk about. And of course, this next bit with vengeful spirits. Yes, there's quite a bit of things that uh, talk about vengeful spirits, or hint at it a little. In this chapter, but that's a great, these are great analyses of the towers and what we're getting through them. Mine was stupid. Um, mine, I, I don't know why, the three towers, maybe you were talking about the dragons, think about them, but in a different way, right? Like the three heads of the dragon, one mm. bitten off, and I was like, maybe the tree oh. sprouting randomly is like Bran. But I'm pretty sure that what I just said is tinfoil and it's stretching it. But, and, you know, going through this again right now, it also makes me think the Children's Tower lost half its crown. And I know that there are people who have theorized, I don't know how plausible this is or not, right? That's not one of the things that I'm strong at picking out or analyzing when it comes to the story. But they've just, in terms of discussing, will the Children of the Forest bring the Hammer of the Waters down at the neck mm -hmm. as they did? at the Stepstones long, long ago. And if they did, I mean, you know, Bran obviously has connections with the Children of the Forest, half the crown, and that division at the end of Westeros between the North and the rest of the kingdoms. Manu, Manuclear Bomb, who has been on with us before to talk about uh, the show, uh, the pilot episode of the show, actually, he has a pretty immense theory of that, that that is going to be the reason that Bran will probably actually hmm. be forced to do it. Or hmm. that Bran will do it with his mind and help bring the hammer down to make that separation and to kind of salvage some of the peace amongst the kingdoms, right, in the aftermath and endgame of Thrones. And I find that really interesting. And I do think that there's something about that half a crown representing kind of the children being enslaved, right, by people that came after them mm. and people that drove them out of their homes, and also that the only ones that were able to survive married, right, and kind of slowly watered down and traded downwards from uh, the Marsh King, for example, married off and to the Starks and slowly gave it and formed this big new union and this big coalition of, of miniature states almost. And it's interesting, half a crown, you know, they were kings in their own right kings and queens yeah absolutely. and their land was invaded and they were driven out yeah yeah what menu says makes sense right it makes sense thematically mm -hmm. which i'm sure he's discussed um in terms of bran's first few lessons about the neck swinging the sword beheadings yeah. so 
Oh, yeah, it's a metaphor. I get it. Yeah. Kaboom. Boom. Metaphors. Boom. The sacrifice. (laughs) The things that you're giving away. Uh, Metaphors. That's a metaphor. That's symbolism. (laughs) Thank you, Amy, for those those memes that you have made for us. If you haven't seen it on our Twitter, our friend Amy made some great (laughs) illustrations to go along with last week's episode. Uh, Well... The Blackfish says that gods have mercy when he sees Moat Kaelin's rubble. And Catelyn's like, well, you know, some call it a death trap. Uh, But she does mention Ned assured her this ruin is much more formidable than it looks. The bogs are impenetrable, full of quicksand, suck holes, teeming with snakes. Okay, so two thoughts. First, this kind of plays in a little with the beginning of the chapters, what we were just talking about with the Manderleys and not judging a book by its cover. Cat is telling brendan the same lesson and we know this because it's a it's a reread so we know that that happens and Mm. (laughs) also though i don't know she said it's impenetrable and every time someone says that i'm like that sounds like a lie to me now when you say impenetrable i'm like that's a little yeah that's a little i was thinking of the veil yeah i was thinking of the veil that she now has gone to the next impregnable yeah impregnable impenetrable i'm like stop jinxing everywhere everyone (laughs) And it is made similarly, right? Because to assault it, right, you'd have to have archers would be defending it. An army would have to wade through the muck, cross Mm -hmm. the lizard lions, scale the mossy, slimy walls, and expose themselves to archers. Like, it is impregnable. It has the same battle plan as the Eerie that they would rain down fire as they climb. Yeah. It just, it feels like something else. It's always something around the, around the corner, and again, goes back to as you were saying the news theory yeah there's got to be one more thing because maybe impenetrable <laughs> it is in fact penetrable <laughs> maybe maybe i mean I-, I do love that because it's like a magical choice too right mm. it's like the sad it- it's also like the idea of frodo being like i can't go back sam and lord <sighs> of the rings i know that you don't know it uh, but frodo being like i can't go back i'm too scarred it reminds me of some of john's possible end game right of that Um, this is the physical cutoff from the north to the south so like for john he'll never be able to go back either way mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even though yeah and that's sad in a book series that's like we should start back what if you can't Ah, what if you can't ah. (laughs) tears you know back in catalan's chapter catalan is also kind of grim right like she's just trying to keep her spirits high but she looks at her yeah. uncle gives him a grim smile and she's like when night falls there are said to be ghosts cold vengeful spirits of the north who hunger for southern blood i mean interestingly doesn't she kind of become this spirit in a way mm. right like she does hunger for the southern blood of the people that betrayed the north mm. yes absolutely and brendan reacts to that by chuckling and is like well Maybe I remind me not to stay here that long. I'm Southern, <laughs> cat. And I think that what you've called out here is really interesting. And I'm going to ramble a bit because it speaks to something that's rubbed me the wrong way about the way that cat is described sometimes by people. Mm-hmm. I love that you have pointed out that she is that cold, vengeful spirit of the North because if Brinton thinks that he's in danger because he's a Southern and cat is just like, yeah, isn't that cool and fun? And she becomes that vengeful spirit. It, it speaks to her not necessarily just being like a southerner anymore, right? And 
this is something that I've been working through since we've started these cat chapters and thinking through the discussion of her character. And we've been emphasizing over and over how Kat has really internalized the Northern legends and their beliefs in ways that Ned himself, again, doesn't always get or he ignores. And yeah, sure, Kat feels a little bit at ease around the godswood. She doesn't really um, always get it. But I think in some ways it kind of shows that, yeah, she fears it, but she respects it. And that speaks again to her actually believing in its power. And a lot of Southerners don't believe that. And that speaks to a Northern faith in its own kind of way. It's the same chapter where we get a better look at the Manderleys, who migrated north, right? They were a southern house, exiled by the Gardner Kings, and where Kat thinks of her son, later this chapter, she's like, he looks like a Tully, she thought, yet he's still his father's son, and Ned taught him well. And we see her also interact with the northern lords. They, like, they show her respect, partially because they kind of have to, but whatever. But they also listen to her commands when she tells them to all get out of the room, and I say all this because I want to bring up how Catelyn is a Stark, and not just a name. She's both a Stark and a Tully. She's straddling between both of those worlds. And I emphasize that because in trying to figure out why it bothers me so much when people say, like, she's not really of the North, or she's never going to really belong there, right? or whatever, I'm like, well, Catelyn's been in the North 15 years. She's done her duty, she's birthed the Northern Heirs, she's kind of semi-running it right now in some ways, right? She can command the men and, and bring swords, and the heirs that she's birthed can skin change, and she was the one who told Ned that the wolves are pretty important and tied to his Northern house. And it just bothers me when people say also along the same lines, that Sansa is more Southern than her siblings because of her Tully looks. When we see that of all her siblings, yeah. she's the most like Ned, other than maybe John, right? And as mm -hmm. pointed out here, Rob looks like a Tully, but he's a lot like Ned. And I have come to the realization that this bothers me, especially in this current moment in our real world, because it feels to me like no matter how much Kat has assimilated, people... And, and I say this including fans, don't see it as enough. Even though she reads the Northern Omens right, it, it grates at me, right, that sh the feeling that she's not enough, because it reminds me of like how no matter what I do, because I'm not white, I'm still never going to be considered American. Like, I have family members who have been here since the 70s or the 80s who, like Catelyn, lives between two worlds and cultures, and they've done a lot to assimilate. And, of course, some things still seem strange to us, right? Things that, mm. but also things back from where they immigrated from are also strange and unfamiliar to them, too, right? We see that happen in Catelyn's chapters when she has to go to River Run and things are different. Things have changed since she was a girl. Some of it is because of that, that assimilation, and I'm just like, do... Do my family members not belong here in America too? Are we never going to be safe here? Are we never going to be seen as being American enough? Same as Kat's never going to be seen as Northern enough. My friends, I grew up in an immigrant community. A lot of my friends are immigrants or from immigrant families like who came here for different reasons. Some of them, their parents are refugees. Do they not belong here because they look different? Just because Kat looks different? And I don't... I'm not saying that Kat herself is written as an immigrant story. I don't think George was a 
there. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give George that much credit. Um, and I'm not trying to be like, oh, you can't criticize Cat, right? I, you know, there's that in the discourse right now. You can criticize Cat, and I'm just saying that there are shades of things in her story that echo my life and the lives of people I love. And it took me a while to understand, like, why does that bother me? And I kind of want to encourage us to shift perspective on drawing such a hard line on Catelyn's identity just because she started out as a Southerner or a Tully. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that with not just, obviously, me, which is what it is right now, but I, I assume other people who will hear this, you know, I'm sure this may be heard by another person someday. Maybe. Uh, so I appreciate, I really appreciate your perspective on this. And I, I do think it feels unfair, right? Th- those angles of a Southerner, a Tolly, as these identifiers of her. She does so much to embrace and preserve both of the cultures in her everyday life and respect them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really something significant, especially here in this chapter, right? She seems to be kind of much more at home as we're going to see with these other northern lords. She feels a little more familiar with people that she knows, whether it's just because she can read them better than she was betrayed by reading her sister incorrectly, mm. um, or if it's just, you know, like, she she just knows how to treat with these people, and I think that's really significantly drawn. That's a great point, yeah, that you can see the difference between how she feels with them and their dynamics versus, yeah, a southern house... The power, too. The the power shift is really obvious. At Liza's court, she couldn't get a word in edgewise to her sister, didn't have any power or control in court, couldn't call for people to leave the room. In fact, Liza like went against that on purpose. And here, she is confident and is able to step into a room and be like, I know you'll all forgive me when I say you have to leave the room now. Yeah. And as you said, it's because over the years, she's shown them respect so that they know to return that respect to her right and yes of course ned has also shown a lot of them respect and we can see that respect come through in her telling these stories to brynden and being like this is what the significance of this place is for the northerners mm-hmm. so yeah yeah i mean like not everyone is written like that right i think that there are ways that we can read that and probably we'll discuss that in some other characters and chapters and again i don't think cat's written with that in mind just it can be seen there, and I'm just, I'm always like, I don't know, but why not? Why can't she be? Why can't she be a Stark now, too? Anyway. Yeah. I mean, she spent half her life a Tully and the other half a Stark. When is it enough? Yeah, and it's something that we allow with Theon a little, right? Because he, I mean, mm-hmm. it was his childhood. He was forced to move, right? And he straddles between two familial identities. And I think that's just a big theme, right, of A Song of Ice and Fire. It doesn't necessarily matter always what your blood is or your name. Obviously, that'll inform how you grow up and what you learn and how you're treated, as we see with Tyrion. But that doesn't mean that you have to be a certain way. And I think it's important, too, that, like, that doesn't mean that how you were born defines you exactly. as we learn. And I think that comes That's a down way better to the way. most... I think we were feeling each other, you know, mm, in that's that beautiful. moment. We were infinite, Eliana. Oh my god. <sighs> back at... Back at Moat Kalen, where they too are infinite, they gaze at the standards that have been raised atop the towers. The Stark standard is, of course, on all three, but from the Drunkard's Tower hangs the Karstark Sunburst and the Great John's Giant and Chains on the Children's Tower. 
The gatehouse tower had been made Rob's seat, and the Stark banner flies alone there. They make for the gatehouse, Brynden and Wendell behind her, and she finds Rob surrounded by his lord's bannermen, a pile of maps and papers in front of him. He speaks intently with Roos and the Great John, and he doesn't notice his mother at first, but Greywind does. Greywind's golden eyes meet Catalan's, and the lords fall silent, which causes Rob to look up. Mother? He said, his voice thick with emotion. Catelyn wanted to run to him, to kiss his sweet brow, to wrap him in her arms and hold him so tightly that he would never come to harm. But here in front of his lords, she dared not. He was playing a man's part now, and she would not take that away from him. She stays at the far end of the slab of stone they use as table, and his wolf pads across the room to her. I love this line. It seemed bigger than a wolf ought to be. Because... Of course, direwolves are bigger, but Rob <laughs> is bigger than he ought to be, right? Mm. Bigger than a wolf ought to be, bigger than a house Stark wolf should be. He's a man mm-hmm. too grown than he's supposed to be at this point. He yeah. was supposed to have a couple years left in her eyes, she had hoped. He's growing, and he thinks he's more grown than he is, like most of us do at that age. But Kat's balance in this chapter of letting Rob make some of his own mistakes with some nudges in the wrong and right directions uh, is admirable. The intimacy she shares with him and letting him make these choices and letting him be the leader, the man, the lord in his lord's voice, stepping into his father's shoes, being the patriarch. It's hard. I'm not a mom. I'm not a sibling. Disclaimers. (laughs) But I am a blatant control freak with a reluctant leader streak. And maybe I can relate to Kat and Rob in that. Right, and, and in seeing my own mother, also another blatant control freak with leadership issues, have to hold back and watch me make my own mistakes in life, right? Like that is, that reminds me so much of this. And, and I don't know, Rob is really putting himself in some direct danger as we go through this chapter of him leading the command in some aspects. And, and for Kat to pull back and be like, yes, you stupid idiot, I'm going to let you charge headfirst into battle with swords at your face. I'm going to just let you do it. That takes a lot. Yeah. That takes a lot. I mean, that's hard for a mom who's supposed to be like, no, don't go scrape your knee. Kids, stay with me forever and ever until we get old and die never. Like, that's that's mom logic, man. Yeah, and the way that you describe that at the end is so important in the context of the chapters we just came from, where Liza won't let her son do anything. It is so directly contrasted of of Liza refusing to let Sweet Robin grow at all. Yeah. Forced Arrested Development, whereas uh, Catelyn's <laughs> like, all right, he wants to grow, I guess I gotta let him. And part yeah. of what she's letting him grow, I mean, you gotta, she's gotta let him, I guess. You know, you gotta let people make their own mistakes. It sounds like it's okay. Rob was blessed a little. She comments on his new beard. Um... <laughs> I don't know how it looks. It sounds like it looks fine, but I'm skeptical. You all know my views on teenage boys and beards. Uh, everybody just wait a little, you know? Don't do not do it. It doesn't look good. But maybe, again, those genes have really worked out for him. The combo of northern and, and southern because the hair in his chin is redder than his own hair. Catelyn says that she likes it, and maybe this is her being a mom. This is her coddling him a little. Tells her it makes him look like her brother Edmure. Can't tell if that's a backhanded compliment. <laughs> Greywind nips at her fingers playfully and goes back to the fire. I mean, everything in the, these like lines, I'm like, Greywind is a good boy. Mm-hmm. Deserves treats. He Greywind. does deserve treats. <laughs> 
Sir Helmand Tallhart is the first Northman to follow Greywind's lead. He comes across the room and he pays his respects to Catelyn. And he presses his head against her hand and, and says, Lady Catelyn, you are fair as ever, a welcome sight in troubled times. After Helmand, the Glovers, Galbert and Robet, the Great John, and the rest come, one by one. The last to pay his respect is Theon, who says he had not looked to see her here, and she responds she had not thought to be here until she had landed in White Harbor and learned from Wyman that Rob called the banners. Good on them for telling her the news. Also, these Theon exchanges are interesting, considering that uh, we put John's chapters right after Theon's because we wanted to contrast them as teenage boys who did feel like outsiders in Winterfell. And at this moment, as we'll see throughout some of these exchanges, Catelyn is cordial, trusts Theon enough, but she is always, as we know, wary about him, but she does treat him differently from John, despite the threat that Theon in many ways represents her family, which, as you all know, does end up actually becoming a thing. This is a reread, and which again, sheds some light on her treatment of John being a little more personal than just feeling threatened about inheritance. That's a really good point. It's obviously something very deeply personal. Yeah. Because, like, Theon's annoying, but not, yeah. not the same treatment. Yeah, exactly. John's less annoying than Theon. <laughs> John's less annoying, but a bigger threat to her personally. It's mm-hmm. very sad. It is, it is. She reintroduces Wendell Manderley and introduces her uncle and mentions he has left her sister's service for hers. Rob thanks them both for coming to join them and asks if Roderick would be joining them too because Rob misses him. <laughs> but he has gone back north, now named Castellan, and is tasked with holding Winterfell alongside Maester Lewin, who is a wise counselor but unskilled in the arts of war. And there's a couple interesting things here. It, it might just be an exposition drop, but Catelyn just gave a whole hell of a lot of information to Theon and Roose that they later will use to their advantage in taking Winterfell. Mm. Roderick is very sweet, but obviously not a warrior, so to speak. And Theon also is the last to leave the room, we're going to notice. So I do wonder if he was just absorbing as much information as possible so he can, you know, stay up on the gossip. Roderick indeed has gone north to his later demise. And Rob here says he misses him. But it's sad because it's kind of that feeling of like Roderick couldn't be there Roderick is one of those childhood facilities, right? Mm-hmm. He, like all things innocence, have to die for Rob's new role of being experienced. No more time for missing your masters-at-arms, childish playthings with your wooden swords, as we're going to visit in this chapter. It's it's war now. This is war. That's a great point, because he's Rob's teacher, and yeah. Rob can't lean on him anymore. He has to make his own decisions. And, I mean, it's sad for me, too. Roderick was, in many ways, also my teacher. He was our (laughs) BFF, Catelyn's BFF. And, I mean, him not being here and knowing what happens to him, I'm just like, no, Roderick. Also, I think Theon... I don't know if he wanted more information or Theon was like, I want to feel important. Yeah, I think it can be both. (laughs) Yeah, it can be both. Uh, I almost, listen, if I'm talking about Theon, there is always an underlying tone of Theon wanting to feel important, okay? That's true. That is actually, (laughs) literally, him. And, yeah. Anyway, Broderick. Anyways. The Grey John promises that Winterfell is safe, and that they'll shove their swords up Tywin's bughole soon enough. (laughs) Ugh. Ugh. The movie seven. And then it's on to the Red Keep to free the Ned. 
Bruce Bolton finally asks about the elephant in the room, which is like, so, Tyrion Lannister, what happened to him? Is he here? And Catelyn admits, uh, no, I do not have him anymore, and that she's no more pleased than the rest of them about this, but the gods and her fool sister, she calls her a fool, uh, saw it fit to free him. Catelyn reflects on her leaving of the Eyrie, which has prompted her somewhat negative attitude on her sister so far <laughs> in the chapter. Publicly. Negative. Catelyn had offered to take Sweet Robin to foster at Winterfell, and Liza's rage had been frightening to behold. Sister, no, she had replied. If you try to steal my son, you will leave by the moon door. Ah, uh, you might remember back in Sansa, when she was upset about Peter, Baelish with Sansa and said, niece or no, you'll leave by hmm. the moon door if you try to take him. So I love that George revisits that later in Sansa and reuses that language. She's projecting. I mean, I get it, right? They, I guess, look the same, but she's really projecting yeah. on Sansa. Oof. Well, and, and there's nothing to be said after that. The lords want to ask her more, but Catelyn raises a hand and she's like, nope, I am going to retire. My journey has exhausted me. I need to speak to Rob alone and I know you will forgive me, my lords. And I love... I love this moment of Catelyn ordering everyone out of the room and setting those terms. One of my favorite moments of the chapter. Um, and here's where I go in another rant. This one's smaller than the last, where I saw a conversation on like one of the many social media platforms where people talk about a song of ice and fire. Someone had posed a question aimed at people who don't like cat. It was, it was a it was a civil right conversation, as far as I remember, but I didn't stick around right um, to see how it went. But Asking people who don't like Kat why they don't like Kat and also asking if to them she has any redeeming qualities. And there was someone who was saying that Kat talks back to all these high lords uh, throughout the first three books and just gets away with it. And at first I thought they were praising that because I mean like, hell yeah, talk back to those high lords. Fuck them. And, you know, talk back to Stannis, talk back to Renly. Those men need to be put in their places. And I was, I mean, yeah, I love it, right? And then I realized as I read it more and like the way that they framed it, I was like, oh my God, this is something that they think is a blunder on Kat's part. They don't like that about Kat. And, you know, sometimes people just don't jive with the character. That's fine. You are entitled to like or dislike characters. You don't always have to like them. But I will like, depending on your rationale, raise my eyebrows a little because here the rationale of like you don't like Kat because she talks back to the High Lords and is thinks she's gonna get away with it makes me think like oh, so you just don't like when women talk back to you, huh? <laughs> yeah, it does seem it, and you know something so interesting about that is yet they were just fine with the Great John one minute ago being like I'm gonna rip my sword up Tywin's bunghole, right? Like that was fine, but that's what you okay. Anyways. You know what I mean? Like, socially, leave her alone. Let her say whatever she wants. Uh, and, and she's right. <laughs> she is. Every time she talks tired. shit. Yeah every, yeah, every time she talks shit to one of these high lords, not just in this room, like, later on also. She's right. Also, they talk shit all day long to each other. Yeah, that's true. I, that's what I mean. Like, I just don't think it's, yeah, it's so silly. Uh so Theon does linger here. He lingers behind and she reminds him that he is included in, you know, the rest of the people that she mentioned. 
<laughs> I love it. I, I do love all of this because Catalin, the way she frames everything is beyond courtesy, right? Like she's done, she's exhausted, and she thinks she's beyond courtesy. So in Catalin's mind, she's dropping F-bombs every other word right now. <laughs> Although what Aww. it actually translates to, right, is like her sitting up straight and being like, my sister Liza has been foolish and difficult. Thank you very much for listening. Like, that's what Catalan says, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, she obviously is mad. She's obviously mad, but I do love the emphasis that she's beyond pissed about it because Liza's lack of support in this war is a betrayal to everything their family stands for and the yep. reason that both of them had to marry, right? Like, the whole goal was get your hands on the swords and now your hands are on the swords and you're not using them. And Brynden is pissed, obviously, too. I mean, he literally quit a job, no notice, to leave and go get a new job. That's big. But I don't know. I uh, I love that Catalan is just out there like, no, House Tully's new words are respect, respect, respect. And Liza has none. No respect. Right? And like, Brynden didn't have a retirement plan lined up. He was going to go back to what? The home of the brother that he hadn't spoken to in a long ass time, because that's how she hadn't even Liza. sent out his HRA information, right? Like, no exit interview or anything. <sighs> but like you know, speaking of Liza's behavior, and as we discussed last chapter, it I think Adlin was right. It was she yeah. feels bad about being discourteous, but I think it was a smart move, even if she didn't mean to do it, to publicly distance herself from Liza's decision regarding Tyrion, because. That was a shit show, and... I mean, she took it way too far. Yeah, she did. Yeah, like, Liza was off her rocker at the end, ready to go. She was like, oh, well, no one'll hear you scream when I throw you out the moon door, so does it matter if you won, Tyrion? She had, like, I don't know if she took it too far, or that was where she meant to take it. She has her reasons, obviously, but they're shit reasons. Anyway, it kind of felt like, I don't know, if I was at that point of murdering people, like I was already one in on my ex-husband, my dead husband, I, I don't know, maybe I'd want to just keep going and say, you know what, maybe another body's easier than dealing with this mess that my sister brought to my door. That's true. I mean, she has a murder door. She has a murder That's door. That's true. She's like, I haven't really used this enough, have I? <laughs> <laughs> I need to make it worth its while as an appliance. Yeah. Why did we spend all this money? Thousands and thousands of years ago on this door if I'm not going to use it. <laughs> it's an antique, but it should be brought out at least for special right. circumstances, festivals, family get-togethers. Get, get the WD-40 to open the, <laughs> open the doors. I bet those hinges creak. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. She's trying to get, to a, get it to a point where they don't anymore. That's how much in <laughs> use they are. Well... Finally alone with just ale and cheese between them. That's nice. Catelyn sips her beer and studies Rob. This is this is nice. He seems taller and a tiny bit older than when she'd left. Oh, and he was already starting to grow up a little at that time too, because he's like, uh, oh, mom's not taking care of us at this moment. Um <laughs> As said earlier, Catelyn compares Rob's whiskers to Edmure's first whiskers. Edmure's first sprouted at sixteen. Again, cannot tell if this is backhanded. <laughs> Rob declares it. He's going to be 16 soon enough, and she reminds him he is 15 now, and he is leading a host to war. To be fair, Edmure was her eldest son, you know, yeah, her firstborn. I, yeah. I mean, she raised that's him that way. Point. That was, so I, I think it is fond. I think she's remembering the fond memories of mm. watching Edmure grow up 
as a child and like seeing his whiskers come in and see him pretend to be a lord, you know, and play with his wooden swords and try to copy yeah. their father. She's watching Rob copy his father and do the same kind of things and be a lord and lead. That's such a great point, especially with the way that this chapter ends and the decision that Cat makes and I'm just project I'm just projecting my own opinions. <laughs> I should, you know, it's everyone, it's your body. Do what you want with it. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Catalan asks if Rob understands why she might maybe be afraid for his well-being, and his look grows stubborn. There was no one else, he said. Catalan asks who the men that filled this room moments before were, that he may have given his command to any of those lords, even Theon, though that wouldn't be her first choice. <laughs> me neither. And, I know, like, me either. Good call, Cat. Uh, and Rob responds that they are not Starks. That significance, it, I feel that in my heart. They're not Starks. Mm -hmm. He has a duty. Catalan argues they are men, seasoned in battle, and he was fighting with a wooden sword less than a year ago. You know, Catelyn is right here in some extent, right? Especially until the part where Rob fucks up everything uh, <laughs> and makes <laughs> bad life choices based on the secondhand trauma of watching what happened to his brother John. Um, anyway... But the Starks are in many ways very fortunate because, yeah, sure, Rob's not seasoned, but aren't we all very lucky that our firstborn son is a battle planning prodigy? Yeah, out of nowhere, right? Right. <laughs> oh, total sports nerd, truly. And even here, <laughs> he caves, he looks embarrassed, and he's like, are you sending me home to Winterfell? Ironically, because, you know, later he tries to send her home to Winterfell. Oh, uh, She sighs. Yeah. He's, she sighs, and she's like, I should, but I'm not going to. Not now. Someday, they'll see you as their liege, and if I sent you home now, it would be like a child being sent to bed without his supper. They will remember and laugh about it in their cups. Mm. There's so much good stuff in this. Uh, this is obvious I'm the King Joffrey vibes, right? Like, I'm the king! A child being sent to bed without his supper. They will remember and laugh about it in their cups. She Absolutely. thinks that she wants them to respect and fear him a little. She tells him that laughter is poison to fear, and she will not do that to him. I love that line. It's come back throughout the series in so many different ways that it's broken down. And it reminds me right now of two exact moments. One is Cersei's concept of poison that she shares with Sansa, right? Permit me to share a bit of womanly wisdom with you. Love is poison. A sweet poison, yes, but it will kill you all the same. And in comparison, also, it reminds me of something from the prologue. It is hard to take orders from a man you laughed at in your cups, Will reflected as he sat shivering atop his Garen. Garen must have felt the same. You know, you think of Tidos mm. Lannister, for example, who was never taken seriously again by his bannermen, and you compare that to the legacy Tywin crafted and forged in blood because of it. Absolutely. And I I think it's great that you've tied this to the Lannisters, right? Um, Cersei, as you said, Tywin and Joffrey, it's so core to the way that their family has developed. But also that's what happens to Joffrey, right? During the Blackwater, mm -hmm. Cersei pulls him from the field and sends him to bed like a child without his supper. And Lancel tries to tell her, like, that's a bad decision. You cannot do that to us. 
right? Because he That's understands what you. it means. It, it kills him and it kills their family, right? It kills the respect yeah. for their family and their king, nonetheless. So it's such a it's such a great point, and we get that lesson first through Catlin. Well, Rob says that Cat has his thanks for that, and she touches his hair, gazing upon him. You are my firstborn, Rob. I have only to look at you to remember the day you came into the world, red-faced and squalling. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think. Aw, I think. <laughs> Maybe. We don't know. Not a mom, not a sister. <laughs> you know, the conversation turns to Ned as it inevitably was going to, and Catalan asks if Rob has had word from his sisters. He scratches Greywind and then reveals the letter that he'd been sitting on that came to Winterfell. One had been for him, one for her. This is the one she wrote me. I never thought to bring yours. Something in Rob's tone troubled her. She smoothed out the paper and read. Concern gave way to disbelief, then to anger, and lastly, to fear. This is Cersei's letter, not your sister's, she said when she was done. The real message is in what Sansa does not say. All this about how kindly and gently the Lannisters are treating her? I know the sound of a threat, even whispered. They have Sansa hostage and they mean to keep her. Mm. Well. They both note there's no mention of Arya in the letter, and Catelyn doesn't feel like puzzling that out. She's like, that's enough depression (laughs) for the night. Rob mentions his hope. Originally, he had hoped that if they had the imp, they could trade hostages. It's interesting that he didn't think to bring her letter. I mean, we know that they all say the same thing, but, right? Yeah. Rob's like, I don't know. I didn't think to bring yours. Um, but- <laughs> it's a total kid thing now that you say it. Like, I don't know, mom. Shit. Yeah, I guess he also thought she was going back to Winterfell, but he's also like, shit. Um, the discussion, though, it is set up, right? This discussion of the imp as a hostage, and it's brought up again earlier that chapter. For Catelyn's last class chapter with Jamie and the value of hostages. Yeah, that's well spotted. Even later when we get into the war tactics of Rob splitting his army, which I guess now that you say that again, that hammer of the water is coming down, that split. Uh, Rob splitting his army, having one side on the other side of the river and one side on the other, and the fact that they were setting up to, you know, fuck with Jamie Lannister specifically, uh, and Tywin. But, you know, they... That's how they end up doing it, is from that split. Like, had he not sent his armies in these separate directions, they wouldn't have ended up getting Jamie. Absolutely. And I also realize now it's interesting that in this moment, when they're talking about Tyrion as a hostage, they're also considering still trading Tyrion for Sansa and Ned. I mean, Ned, of course, is enough as it is, but he's still willing mm-hmm. to trade Tyrion to get Sansa back. Whereas later on, when it's Jamie. Sansa is no longer valuable enough. And I think that speaks to both uh, the value, for better or for worse, uh, of girls, right? And women mm-hmm. hostages being less valuable. But also, does it speak to Tyrion's, like the way that they perceive value. Tyrion's value, as well as the not the Kingslayer and the youngest brother and uh, yeah. the imp? Yeah, he's worth two girls. Damn. And Ned, maybe. No. (laughs) I mean, they were hoping, right? And what's interesting is no one's mad at her here, right, for having done that. They honestly were all rooting for it. They're all like, yeah, get the imp, man. We would have had a token, Catelyn. Aw, shit, you don't have the imp? Which is so funny because it's such like a controversial thing in the fandom of like, was it a good thing that Cat 
to Tyrion, it doesn't matter because all of the lords of the north here are like, shit, sure wish you still had that imp. We're in a precarious position. Um, That's a good point. Yeah, like they're fine. None of them are mad. In fact, obviously we know why they're mad with Jamie. It's very inflamed. There were, you know, maybe some violent acts between parties. It's a crazy time and things are obviously more inflamed. But I do think there's something interesting in Rob. I know I mentioned it already, but Rob in the beginning... You know, he's all gung-ho, oh, mom, don't send me home. But by the end of the chapter, he's been gassed up a little bit, all right? Like, she gassed him up pretty good, being all like, you're being a great commander, Rob. You're making the right choices, even if I just had to verbally guide you to him. You're a great commander. And I do think there's kind of that, that tension raised of, like, right now, these hostages to them are equal value. But later, the price of a hostage changes drastically for Rob. Yeah. And what he considers the exchange rate. Yeah. Because even, even in a bit, they're like, well, we need the Kingslayer if we're going to get Sansa. And maybe it's because Ned's not on the table yeah. anymore. He's on a spike. Um, but... <laughs> He's off the table for sure. <laughs> uh, anyway. <sighs> so that there's a lot going on. But I think that's an interesting point that the lords were never like, Catelyn, why the fuck did you do that? They're like, shit, <laughs> we could have done something with that. <laughs> Right. I thought that was something interesting this time mm-hmm. around, for sure. They, I mean, they're all gung-ho. They just want to kill Lannisters. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them <laughs> do. To be honest. Yeah. And, like, uh, they try- that happens later on. Yeah. The In car fact, starts. that becomes a huge plot point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, they want to just shove swords up Lannister bungholes. It's I not mean, a bung. That's the theme. Oh, it's not a bung. It's a different bung. Well, different bung. It's so sad. There's this line. He took Sansa's letter and crumpled it in his fist, and she could tell from the way he did it that it was not the first time. Mm. I appreciate that Catelyn has the right of it from the jump that this message is in what Sansa does not say, that it's Cersei's words in her hand, especially because later she hears Rob speak with the Lord's words in his voice. So I love that she calls it out as that, and then she thinks it again later. To bring us back to Bran's last chapter, where Rob first reads the message. When the raven came, bearing a letter marked with father's own seal and written in Sansa's hand, the cruel truth seemed no less incredible. Bran would never forget the look on Rob's face as he stared at their sister's words. She says father conspired at treason with the king's brothers. King Robert is dead and mother and I are summoned to the Red Keep to swear fealty to Joffrey. She says we must be loyal, and when she marries Joffrey, she'll plead with him to spare our lord father's life. His fingers closed into a fist, crushing Sansa's letter between them. And she says nothing of Arya, nothing, not so much as a word. Damn her, what's wrong with the girl? So I love that the first take of the letter, Rob is automatically like, what is she saying? Like, how could she write me this? How could Sansa say this? And uh, the second take of the letter, of course, Catelyn says, wow, I can't believe Cersei made her write this and realizes Mm -hmm. immediately that it might be her hand, but it is not her word. And that's again, Catelyn reading things well, right? She read the omens and she's reading this letter. And just as she read the subtext, even though, I mean, it was kind of wrong. uh, Liza's letter. Liza's letter was all lies. But I mean, how how could she know that? Um, Yeah. But there's all these different things, and and Catelyn's very good at getting to the underlying meaning. Just like she read the magnifying glass, right? She's like, oh, that means we gotta look closer. (laughs) Exactly. No, exactly. 
Rob asks if Aunt Liza has plans to help, and if the banners have been called, and the Knights of the Veil, but alas, only one of them, the Blackfish. But he was a Tully first, and yeah, yeah, Liza, as we've said. So Rob's pretty perturbed about this. He says, Mother, what are we going to do? I brought this whole army together! 18,000 men, but I don't... I'm not certain... He looked to her, his eyes shining, the proud young lord melted away in an instant, and quick as that, he was a child again, a fifteen-year-old boy looking to his mother for answers. It would not do. It would not do, his attitude. It wouldn't. Uh, but, I mean, that's being fifteen, right? Who? I could not do all this at fifteen. I very much could not. I can't even do this at twenty-nine. <laughs> I know, right? There's, you know, we've talked a little bit about various discussions and have stressed that, yeah, these characters are young, right? They're doing dumb shit because they're young. And I saw this comment on Threaded that I thought was pretty funny. Um, and interestingly, it's in the context of a thread that says, It's adorable that Sansa thinks 22-year-old Beric is awfully old, which is awfully rude to me. But anyway... <laughs> And people have pointed out, right, that a historicalness of George R. R. Martin's uh, way of writing a lot of the ages. And this user, the thistle in the burr, uh, brings up an interesting point that George uh, is inspired by Tuckman's A Distant Mirror, which is one of um, and one of the central theses of this book, is that the character of the 14th century Europe was in quotes essentially adolescent and the reason why is because there were a lot of teenagers in positions of power or influence which again probably not a good idea but that's just how things happen i guess when people keep dying and not that there uh to continue from what the user says not that there were never any more mature people around making decisions but and again quoting tuckman the flower of french chivalry was often around 18 years old and therefore tends to be incredibly reckless and hot-headed so people you know they fault a lot of these characters for making dumb decisions but like that's what people do at that age and that's what happened in real life you get you get a hot-headed century and really fucked up politics when you have teenagers running it yeah that is tough to navigate with especially in this and I don't find it, like, I guess, especially for Sansa, because she's like a 12-year-old that's like, wow, 22, that's so old. Yeah. Uh, I actually think there's a good amount of that that we find in these books, right? And I think it is interesting because you have characters and you have historical figures, uh, like Anne Boleyn. She seems to always be depicted as being so young, but when she gets the old chop-chop, she's like 30-ish, somewhere in her 30s, you know? Uh, and Kitty Howard, for example... She's super young when she dies. She's 15, 16 when she gets the old chap chap. Um, it's the historical the historical way to, to talk about their deaths, the chop chap. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it it's interesting because I'm like, I see the arguments for people that get annoyed about the ages. And sometimes I do. Sometimes it is like, all right, this isn't very, there, there's no way, George. You did this to yourself. Oh, absolutely. But at the same time, I guess it just doesn't matter. I think that for me the most egregious is the flaws that happen when the five-year gap is scrapped. I'm just saying yes. that like when characters do dumb shit like the Sark children, it's because they're children. As Marcella says, we're children. We're supposed to be childish. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, I uh, 
<laughs> obviously I love brand, but even like in not loving brand, like I do find brands chapters fine. I know George sometimes says like they're difficult or yeah. they're just his harder, harder chapters to write, but I, I do love them. I think he captures the whimsy and some of the conflict for Bran as a young man or a young boy pretty well. Yeah, I think they're, they might be harder for him, but he should feel proud of what he has written in Bran. And I like the Bran chapters. Uh, we've discussed this before. I was surprised people don't like the Bran chapters. I love the Bran chapters. Man. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, people who love Bran, Catelyn Stark... Cat gently asks Rob what he is afraid of, and Rob says, even if they win, the Lannisters will kill Sansa and Father, won't they? And Catelyn says, I don't know, but I do know one thing, and it's that you have no choice. If you swear fealty at King's Landing, then, like, Rob's never going to be allowed to leave. If he retreats to the north, his vassals will lose all respect for him, and some might even just end up going to the Lannisters because of that. So, with that much less to fear... If uh, those lords defect, then the queen can do whatever she likes with her prisoners. So Catelyn says that their only hope is to defeat the foe in the field and capture Lord Tywin or the Kingslayer in hopes to trade for their family back. And I'm just like, wow, you know, he's <laughs> he's young. You know, we've been talking about how he's young, but damn, Rob is the definition of just like understood the assignment. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I, I love that when we get this breakdown soon of the actual war plan, he comes to that conclusion, right? He explains to her, this is my weak spot. This is where I'm screwed. And it's pretty much matches up exactly with what she says here. Mm -hmm. Rob finally asks, what if the fighting goes against us? And Kat takes his hand. She says, if you lose, there's no hope for any of us. She reminds him of the fate of Rhaegar's children and sees the fear and the strength in his eyes from this. Hmm. This on reread stood out so much. The fate of Rhaegar's children. I mean, how about the fate of Rob and his mom? Throwing her in the river naked, stuffing Grey Wind on his head. Uh, the, the horror. It, it's horrific. It is horrific how they're treated and it does show up as a horrific crime the Lannisters have committed. Well, not the Lannisters, but you know what I mean. They were basically involved in in Roos's passing. But showing those people behind these egregious wars and burning down the riverside. Uh, and it's, this is a whole nother rebellion, right? Like, this is rebellion too. Let's go again. Mm -hmm. It's everything they fought for before. And the way this is worded, of course, hits the nail right on the head. Is it a metaphor? Is it an analogy? We don't know. They say there is naught but stone at the heart of Casterly Rock. Remember the fate of Rhaegar's children. This was also kind of brought up thematically in Danny's chapter prior. Daenerys, almost poisoned by the wine merchant, thinks of Rhaegar and thinks how now she is the last of the dragons, that she can never let the Dash Kaleen and Vase Dothrak be her home. In fact, she thinks about how much she would love to let it be her home, but then thinks, with Viserys gone, Daenerys was the last, the very last. She was the seed of kings and conquerors, and so too the child inside her. She must not forget. The chapter ends, of course, with Khal Drogo swearing to avenge her family, wronged by the current usurpers on the throne, claiming what is hers, coming off of, of course, her having to defend herself from her brother, thinking of his death. Liza, in a way, is now dead to Catelyn, and if not now dead, will be very soon dead. Uh, and 
I don't know. It's just interesting. There are times Catelyn and Rob's story do feel like a similar dynamic alternate timeline Danny and Rago, maybe with no dragons. Interesting. You know? That's such an interesting point. I haven't thought about that because that is what she envisioned for her son. Mm-hmm. Now she's got to do it herself. Ha <laughs> Raise the countryside all over again. <sighs> Life's hard. The phrasing of um, this exchange is interesting. We've been talking about Tywin a little bit, right? And obviously he's Rob's big foe on the battlefield. And actually later on in the books, we see he's one of the big bads. But with the way that we opened on the Lannister twins in this book itself, and what allegedly happened to John Aaron, according to Liza's letter, it's interesting that throughout this, Rob and Kat are framing, and they see they see Cersei as the very big villain, the one who will gut them if they show any weakness. And I guess that does happen to be the case, right? For Ned's storyline, at least. There's also a line that you called out that I love, especially in the context of the of Alyssa Aaron's tears that we've been talking about the past two chapters of Rob, I will not soften the truth for you. If you lose, there's no hope for any of us. They, they say there is not, but stone at the heart of Casterly Rock. And I'm just going to repeat that. Not, but stone at the heart of Casterly Rock. Stone, uh, Ned. <laughs> stone. Heart. Um, and I'm just like, Fire. interesting, Catelyn. Are you sure that's not you? Not Casterly Rock. It will be. Not mm-hmm, not mm-hmm, necessarily mm-hmm. Casterly, but... Cast into the river. Casterly Rock. Cats. I drew that once on a sticky note. Aw, that's beautiful. That's we like, connect through this. Yeah, that's all. A cat, you know, Casterly Rock, but with a cat head. Cat, Ned. Cat! <sighs> he vows not to lose this war, and she quizzes him on the fighting in the Riverlands. He tells her a battle was fought below the Golden Tooth, but Uncle Edmure sent Lord Vance and Piper to hold the pass. But the Kingslayer descended and put them to fight. Lord Vance was slain, and Piper fell back to join Edmure and the Bannermen at Riverrun. All that time, the Kingslayer had kept them busy. Tywin brought a second army from the south, even larger than Jamie's host. You know, this sticks out. In killing Lord Vance, they've solidified the Riverlands participating in this rebellion. Hmm. Now it's personal. That's so interesting. Father must have known that because he sent out some men to oppose them under the king's own banner. He gave the command to some southern lordling, Lord Eric? Or Derek? Or something like that. But Sir Raymond Derry rode with him, and the letter said there were other knights as well, and a force of father's own guardsmen. Only it was a trap. So when Lord Derek crossed the Red Fork, the Lannisters <laughs> fell on him, and Gregor took him in the rear, and then Lord Derek and his men may have escaped, but Sir Raymond and the men from Winterfell were killed. Tywin closed off the King's Road, and now he marches north to Harrenhal, burning as he goes, as Tywin do. Oh yeah, major Tywin energy, and <laughs> I love this, right? Love the difference between the unofficial news and official news, and that Rob's understanding here is that Ned sent Lord Derek out for Winterfell's <laughs> war against Tywin, right? Like, obviously he knows it was King's justice, but the way he's speaking about it 
seems that he thinks that Ned is playing into their plan somehow, or he's out there trying to help them, when in reality Ned is just sending the king's justice, right, to bring Gregor to person. Not necessarily stop Tywin, because as we just experienced in Edward Eleven, uh, that's the exact opposite. He does not want to instigate. He is trying very hard to hmm. navigate between this very, very weird rock and small place here of Tywin Lannister being, you know, the dad-in-law of his BFF. Very hard, very difficult. Politically a little awkward with the Lannisters and Starks here. Of course, Rob gets Lord Derek Dondarian's name wrong, right? Beric Dondarian. He was close. Beric actually comes back in the next chapter in passing because he continues to steal and raid from Tywin's supply lines. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Go, Derek. There's a great emphasis here on how Tywin isn't actually behind these things, but Rob sees right through that he is. That Tywin is amassing the armies, and he's bringing that second load of people up to mess their shit up. This isn't just the assets Tywin sacrifices, Right, like later Tywin will sacrifice the Mummers and Gregor to clean his hands easily. This is Tywin himself. This is his way of war. And I do think that it's an interesting thought here. Uh, it kind of lends credence to the idea of independence. Rob is already thinking of the North as an independent place, not a North living under the crown. That's an interesting point. And that shows, you know, the direction that they're going in. I wonder what those lords have been saying to him on the way down. And yeah, they just do not want to live under Lannister rule. Duh. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Derek, that's my other favorite part in this chapter. Uh, it's a great lead-in to towards the end of the chapter. Uh, as it nears close, it shows that Rob doesn't really know um, yet the nobles across the Seven Kingdoms, not super well, as Catelyn coaches him through his vassals for different duties. But also, it just kills me. It just kills me when he calls him Derek, and he just, like, fucking stuck with that. It makes me think of Derek from The Good Place <laughs> every time. Maximum Derek. <laughs> I'm Derek, and... Oh Derek? My god. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, the best part of the chapter. Anyway... <laughs> I think that's why Jane was so in love with him, right? Because he has wind chimes in his crotch. Oh, you're right. That is that is his allure. And he does come back over and over again. <gasps> Derek. <laughs> uh, I think this is real. Uh, anyway. If Tywin does venture that far north, Rob means to meet him here. If the Lannisters come up the neck, Hal and Reed at Greywater Watch will bleed them dry. But Lord Oops. Glover... Oops. <laughs> But Lord Glover and Bolton think that Tywin is too smart for that and that he will stay close to the Trident, taking the Riverland castles one by one until Riverrun stands alone. So he is forcing them to come south to meet them. It's like chess. George R. R. Martin's really into chess. Not that I actually know chess, but it feels like it. All right, Queen's Gambit, settle down. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love that we get our Cranog mention. Uh, the Cranog men continue to hold this garrison up until a feast for crows. We last hear of Howland and his people actually in Jamie for a feast for crows, possibly hiding and possibly housing Lady Stoneheart and her band of merry men. Which I think is very interesting that she went toward Moat Kaelin and she disappeared, right? So Theon resolves the siege of Moat Kaelin, and Roose sends a decoy in to avoid an assassination attempt later in Reek 2 in a Dubada. 
so we'll see. I think we might come back to these bogs in Tiwau or in A Dream of Spring. Yep. Well, Catelyn is scared, understandably, wondering what 15-year-old could battle commanders like Jamie and Tywin. She second-guesses him and says that he strongly plays at Moot Caelan. The old kings in the north would stand at Caelan and throw back hosts ten times their own. But the food stores are running low, he reveals, and the land is not easy to live off of. Now that the Manderleys joined their strength, they must march. Yes, and this is where Catelyn is hearing the Lord's voice, right? But not just the Lord's voice like Ned, she's hearing all of the Lords that were just in this room speaking through her son's confused mouth. And I think there's such a distinction of, like, Rob being a 15-year-old here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ugh. And, like, Catelyn knows that and can hear those other lords' voices because she's hosted many of these lords. This plays into, again, this later part of this chapter, and she's learned what sort of men they, they each are. She wonders if Rob knows as well, and I'm like, the answer is no, because he's 15. Right? Like, I don't pay attention yeah. to that shit as a child. And, like, fuck. I wish I knew what sort of people people were like when I was 15. And I sometimes wish that I knew that now. And maybe when I'm Catelyn's age, in, like, two years, I will be that wise. I mean, she's been watching her husband drink with them for 15 years. You know? Yeah. They drank ale and joked together for 15 years worth of dinners on and off. And, uh... There's definitely sense in what the Lord's told her son, right? Like, she respects those angles. Most of the host that Rob has is accustomed to maintenance. They're not like the armies you would go buy over in the free cities. Most of these people are small folk. Crofters, field hands, fishermen, sheep herders, the sons of innkeeps and traders and tanners, leavened with a smattering of sellswords and free riders hungry for plunder. When their Lord's called, they came, but not forever. Hmm. learning about these armies and who the people of his nation really are feels significant here, right? Especially as he joins to the Riverlands in strength. And it stays really consci- like really cognizant in the next chapter where we see Tyrion also interfacing with the Vale clans and with the people that he's brought from the Vale. I think this is such a clever training and exposition sequence overall for Rob uh, in, in kind of cunning Warcraft and in diplomacy, not just stick them with the pointy end Warcraft. And I think that's important for Rob as he goes forward and he starts to kind of get a little smarter about these things. Mm. Yes, it really is. And Kellen tells Rob that marching is all well, but what do you mean to do? The Grey John would have them surprise Tywin in the field. The Glovers and Karstarks think that they should join up with Edmure against the Kingslayer, but Rob's not certain what's the better route. And Catelyn's like, you must be certain, or else just go home and take the wooden sword up again. That Rob cannot afford to be indecisive with these men. They are his bannermen and not his friends. She reminds him that he named himself Battle Commander. He tells him, command. So she asks him again, what do you mean to do? And there's definitely a deeper discussion to be had about Kat's parenting that will probably happen more in later chapters, and we discuss this a bit in the first few ones in regards to her relationship with Rob. But I do think she is doing a great job of mentoring the heir to the North in this and how to lead. And, you know, and later he's going to have to rule a kingdom. 
in terms of letting him think things through on his own and come to his own conclusions, it's not just that. like She she did this little in that earlier chapter with Rob, but she's prompting him on his rationale, which gives Rob practice at justifying his decisions, especially doing it aloud, and thinking also through his actions rather than just going with his gut or what other people tell him to do. And we'll see towards the end of Rob's plan, Kat asks a question, and it could seem like a criticism, right? She pushes back a little, but rather than, but it's not. It allows Rob to actually explain the advantage of putting a river between, yes, his own armies, but also between the Lannisters' armies. And I would add that Kat is a master at a certain craft in this chapter that most of you may know, but some of you might not. And I might be blowing a lot of covers right now, but it's what we like to call planting the seed. Right? Inception. Yes. If you plant the seed and make them think it was their idea, they might go for it, right? Mm -hmm. It might be something later subconsciously this leader decides to choose that plan because of your planting of the seed. So I'm just saying, cat, master at that. Master craft seed planter. Absolutely. Yeah. I I don't know that that's necessarily here, but because I don't, she's not like a battle commander, right? That's not her thing all the time. But yeah. No, but she uses the same psychology of, mm-hmm. okay, I can't tell him directly that he shouldn't do that stupid ass decision. Yeah. So she plants a seed for him to change it on his own. Yeah. Rob draws out an old ragged leather map and he weighs it down with his dagger. He breaks down that if they swing around Tywin's host, they risk being caught between both armies. If they attack him, they might lose because he has stronger numbers and armored horse. The Great John thinks they can catch him with his breeches down, but Rob thinks Tywin is too seasoned to be surprised in that way. Catelyn hears the echoes of Ned in Rob's voice and gives him her approval, asking him to keep going. He thinks he'll leave a force to hold Moat Kaelin, archers, and march down the causeway, but he plans to split a host in two south of the Neck. The foot can go down the King's Road while their horsemen cross the Green Fork at the Twins. The plan here is when Tywin hears that they've come south, he'll march north to engage the first host, while the rest of the riders hurry to River Run. And speaking of some of those similarities between the way that Catelyn, you know, and Rob think, this is Rob's plan, right? He came up with this, but it reminds me a little, this misdirection is exactly what Catelyn did when she told everyone, yes, we are going north! We are going north, everyone! Uh, that is exactly what I thought, too. I, I thought it was so cattle and reminiscent of her split plan. Absolutely. So learn learn a couple of things. <laughs> Not He doesn't only think like Ned, but Rob doesn't dare smile. Uh, he doesn't want to seem too boyish, but he does seem very pleased with his plan and is hungry for Catelyn's praise. She questions the plan, uh, saying, well... You'd be separating your armies with a river between them. And Rob's like, yeah, but we're also separating Jamie and Tywin. And now Rob allows himself a little victory smile while bringing out the next part of his plan. And he knows that they won't be able to cross unless they cross at the twins. So we're going to need Lord Frey, her father's bannerman, to cross. Oh, and... now you need your mom. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, he's not, this isn't like... Yeah, Lord Frey. We all we got, all got thoughts about him. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And you know what? This is, of course, the big 
big entrance of the Lord Frey and Cat's plot again to bring us back to him. The late Lord Frey, Catelyn thought. He is, she admitted, but my father has never trusted him, nor should you. Rob promises not to trust him in return and asks what she thinks of this plan. Despite herself, she's impressed. He looks like a Tully, but he is his father's son. Ned taught him well. I love that Rob is like, yeah, I promise. I won't trust that guy. And then, like, Rob forgets <laughs> his promise. Yeah. Decides to trust Walder Frey. Yeah. Yeah. Or decides, like, it'll be fine. He forgets his own promise, not just... He forgets a lot of promises. He forgets not the promise to not trust Lord Frey. Also, that promise that he made to Lord Frey. <laughs> Rob, what's uh, a promise? I don't know. Good thing Liana didn't ask Rob to keep her promises. But I guess maybe Ned might not have kept it. I don't know. It's up in the air. Had a lot of promises. Yep. Catelyn asks Rob which force he plans to command, and he answers immediately. Horse. Just like his father would have, she thinks, taking the dangerous task himself. She asks who will lead the other force, and he begins to think the great John should lead and take the honor of smashing Tywin, but this this is definitely a misstep in Catelyn's eyes. She tries to choose her words very carefully, hoping not to wound his newfound confidence, and she goes about it in that smart way that we mentioned. She leads that great John is so fearless, and, you know, your father is not necessarily fearless, but, you know, he is brave. And Rob thinks on that. He's like, huh, only the Eastern host will stand between Tywin and Winterfell. I don't want fearless. I want cold cunning. They both come to the same result. They say Bruce Bolton. They agree he's scary and hope that he will scare Tywin as well. Hmm. I'll give the commands and assemble an escort to take you home to Winterfell. Catelyn fought to keep herself strong for Ned's sake and for this stubborn, brave son of theirs. She had put despair and fear aside as if they were garments she did not choose to wear, but now she saw she had donned them after all. I am not going to Winterfell, she heard herself say, surprised at the sudden rush of tears that blurred her vision. My father may be dying behind the walls of Riverrun. My brother is surrounded by foes. I must go to them. Hmm. Once more, Catelyn avoids going home to Winterfell. Interesting. A recurring theme we are about to see. A recurring theme. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think the big question of this chapter is, who was the better choice to lead, right? Like, Bruce obviously was maybe not the best choice to put in that <laughs> powerful position. I kind of think Gelbert Glover or Rebecca Glover might have been the best or better choice for leading that command. Uh, a man to get the job done, to follow the directions from their liege lord, and men who know the area and know a little bit about the land. Yeah, I don't know necessarily who was a better choice to lead. I just know why Roos wasn't, you know, we, we all kind of know. Um, but again, it's another one of those examples of the audience, like having more information than Kat. And yeah, like, that's true. Especially upon a reread, right? Like, it's not even given to us that early on in these books. Um and it comes back to that idea of Kat had grown up believing that the rules of the world that she was taught worked, right? Even though, like, there are untrustworthy vassals, right? She calls it out and knows that Walder Frey's one to them. And she thinks that they're exceptions and that 
you know, they'll probably maybe come through in the end, like he did that one time. But she's it's not sure, right? It is a gamble, and she knows that. And, you know, obviously in hindsight, as you said, you know, Galbert Glover's a better choice, and probably even the Grey John's, like, a better choice. Like, they were yeah. not just willing to get the job done. They, like, actually want this job. And Roos is, like, I don't know, doing weird things and I mean George himself has said that Bruce didn't make his decision to defect until later in Storm so it's not like as early as here but we do see that this plan that Rob has kind of gives the potential for that meeting or opportunity like for that meeting for Bruce and Tywin um, and you know when we're discussing political context right the Boltons and the Starks haven't always been copacetic and especially starting next book, like that, that becomes really clear towards mm-hmm. the end of Clash. Uh, <laughs> but I think that again, when it comes to like both Walder and Bruce, Cat, and I, I think to be fair, everyone else was surprised too because that's why they're like, "Wow, I can't believe that shit happened when it came to the Red Wedding, like in Westeros." Yeah. But Cat believed a little too hard in that feudal contract, so she was like, "It'll be fine sending the Boltons, even though he's kind of spooky," and. I think the problem with that, though, is Rob's plan is already taking a risk on one potentially untrustworthy vassal. That's Lord Frey. And that one, Cat yeah. knows for sure, is suspect. So you want to, like, lessen the amount of suspect people that you trust as much as possible. You know, Bruce, I-, I guess they just didn't see him as that, right? They didn't read him as that. He's just, like, creepy. But there's, like, a bunch of fucking creepy people. And the problem is you gambled on two elements within the same game. You know. And one of the elements they knew much less, right? Catelyn does not have a ton of personal experience with Roose. Of those two people, she knows mm-hmm. Lord Frey True. much more than she knows Roose. And Rob, unfortunately, doesn't either. I mean, Roose doesn't just, like, come hang out all the time on weekends in Winterfell, you know? He obviously yeah. is a fair-weather lord that does not come often, does not have a ton of interaction with Ned just enough. So I can't really hold that against them. They didn't know him. Uh, They just knew of his reputation and they trusted the wrong thing. Yeah, and they're going off of what they have, right? Like, it seems clear that Roos probably held with them during the Robert's Rebellion. So they're like, well, he'll probably do so again here. That has happened before. But, I mean, yeah, as you said, she's not, she doesn't have a good read on Roos and... Ned probably doesn't either. And like Who does? I mean, like, I don't want to hang out with Roose Bolton, alright? He doesn't want to hang out with them, and they don't want to hang out with him. And like, that's fair. I Roose Bolton does not, you know, in the reality, like TV star show way, he did not come here to make friends. No, most definitely did not come here to make friends. And that, unfortunately, is something that our friend Rob Stark is going to learn throughout our time mm-hmm. in these chapters. And our other friend, our best friend, Roderick. Oh, that's horrible, because it's horribly true, and Roderick does learn it. He learns it so hard that he, too, dies from, from the, the knowledge Boltons. of it. Yep. From the Boltons, yep. Uh, well, Eliana, thanks for giving me a happy note to end our episode on. You're welcome. I think we're going to end on a really happy note, these Catelyn chapters. Yeah, it's only going to get happier from here, folks. So if you're not already, make sure that you're subscribed to us and follow us over on social media, right? You could tweet us your thoughts about the episode, about the chapter, about how sad you are about the Cattle and Tully Stark episodes, because they're sad for us too. There are, there are a lot of sadness every week, but we're doing it, goddammit. 
Uh, Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter, or send us an email, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. You can keep up with us and our journey towards Kat's very happy ending uh, by subscribing to our podcast. You can find us on Google Play, Amazon Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Overcast, Acast, Audible. Yeah, we're those there. are some those are some examples of places you can find us. You might find us on far more than that. You can get creative. Or if you want a place with a private feed that you could have us on, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash girls gone canon. If you're a Patreon member, you do get an RSS feed, a feed that you could feed us through in all of our special episodes, five dollar and up. Members of our Patreon do get special episodes. They get them every other month in a Song of Ice and Fire themed episode and every other other month in a His Dark Materials or other related topic. So this month, again, we're covering the free cities. We're going to Pentos, so pack up, get on the ship, all aboard. Mm-hmm. Get on the ship. Get on the dragon, maybe. Oh. And, of course, you know, while you're maybe in Pentos, perhaps you would like to enjoy the local festivities. For example, our Discord <laughs> brunch slash happy hour on May 23rd. Yeah, can't wait. 2 to 4 ET, 2 to 4 Eastern Daylight Savings Time, and it's going to be fun. I- I'm excited for this month. We're going to do a slideshow, potluck presentation style slideshow again with everyone, so... Uh, look for details on our Patreon soon on that. Yeah, we haven't done one of those in a while, so I think it'll be fun. Change pace. Creative. Indeed. Dreams. Of spring. <laughs> As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Goodbye. See you next week. They're so good to die.